Hello, welcome to the American Lung Association's Tobacco Cessation Podcast. My name is Anna Julio, and I'm your host. Today, we're talking about tobacco cessation and behavioral health. While smoking rates have decreased across the general population, there's been a significantly less of a decrease for the behavioral health population. The most recent data show that the overall smoking rate is at an all-time low of 14%. That same data show that people with serious psychological distress smoke at significantly higher rates. That rate is 35.2%. While we know that this disparity exists, we also know solutions to help reduce the disparity. Today, I'm talking with Tesleem Von Houten from the National Council for Behavioral Health to talk to us a little bit about what works to help smokers with behavioral health disorders quit, as well as what we can do as people interested in helping people quit, public health departments, health systems, to address this disparity. Here's the conversation I had with Tesleem this morning. Tesleem, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, um, so good morning and thanks so much for um, talking to me. Uh, my name is Tesleem Van Hattem and I serve as a Director for Practice Improvement for the National Council for Behavioral Health. And the National Council is um, a membership organization. Um, we really seek to be the unifying voice of um, America's healthcare organizations that deliver mental health and addiction treatment services. So we represent about 3,000 membership organizations that are community behavioral health organizations, addiction treatment organizations, um, social service organizations um, that are serving approximately 10 million Americans, um, both children and families living with um, mental health and substance use disorders. Um, and really, we center our work around providing comprehensive, high-quality care to every individual family um, and community, um, particularly those that are impacted by um, mental health and um, substance use disorders. And then um, in my role with the National Council, I have the distinct pleasure um, of serving in the role as, as a director of the National Behavioral Health Network for Tobacco and Cancer Control, or NBHN. And NBHN is one of eight CDC um, national networks to eliminate cancer and tobacco disparities amongst um, priority populations. And we specifically seek to um, address the needs of individuals um, with behavioral health conditions. So when I'm talking about behavioral health, um, I'm talking about someone living with a a mental illness and or addiction or substance use disorder. Um, And then I I think about that in a few different ways because I think behavioral health is also the um, emotional behavioral and biological health of an individual, right? That holistic health, um, it includes those ways of promoting well-being um, and preventing or intervening in an, in mental illness, um, but also encompasses preventing and um, addressing substance use disorders and um, other addictions. So the, the, that's really the priority population that we are funded um, and jointly funded by CDC's Office of Uh, Office on Smoking and Health and the Division of um, Cancer Prevention and Control um, to provide resources and tools um, to help organizations, and that's everyone from healthcare organizations to public health organizations, um, to reduce tobacco use and cancer amongst individuals with behavioral health conditions. Then we do that in a few different ways um, through both resources as well as a lot of practice change initiatives, everything from uh, learning communities to communities of practice to um, pretty dynamic training and technical assistance opportunities 
that deliver the most up-to-date, um, you know, information and practice change support to address smoking cessation. Can you just start out maybe by giving us some background on the disparity around smoking and the population with people with behavioral health disorders? Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a few um, pretty astounding disparities that individuals with um, mental health and addictions face, but particularly around um, smoking and then delivery of um, smoking cessation supports. Um, so tobacco use, I mean, as we know, is the single most preventable cause of um, disease and death in the United States. And then um, the rates of that tobacco use are extremely maldistributed amongst um, different populations, resulting in those significant um, health disparities. So I think tobacco use is um, almost 71% higher um, than the general population in adults with um, mental illness. Um, so smoking rates are about two to four times higher amongst individuals with um, mental illness and substance use disorders. And then also um, individuals within this group um, have lower quit rates. Um, and uh, then um, in addition to the actual uh, like smoking rate amongst um, individuals with mental illness and addiction, um, what you might imagine are the resulting consequences. So um, certainly just much higher um, comorbid conditions, much higher rates of um, cancer and then early mortality. So a lot of the time we talk about um, individuals with serious mental illness dying on average. Um, we've got a couple different statistics somewhere between five and 25 years earlier than the general population. Um, we rarely finish that sentence and say often that's not due to their directly to their um, mental health or substance use disorder, but really due to preventable diseases, particularly those caused by and impacted by smoking, so cancer and cardiovascular disease. Wow, that's really shocking, very uh, sobering statistic. Yeah. It's really an astounding disparity and difference. Yeah. So we've talked to you talked a little bit about you know the high smoking rate. Mm -hmm. But why is it so important to, you know, kind of why it's important to address smoking? Yeah. Um, but can you maybe speak a little bit more to kind of what, how this population deals with smoking and cessation in particular? So I think we can talk a lot about um, the solutions, which is really easy because we have so many of the solutions, right? We know what the problem is and we also know what some of our evidence-based interventions and solutions are. And I'll probably say that six times as we talk okay. today, right? But I think there's this piece about what you really want folks um, to, to um, understand. And that's um, first and foremost, like what I want folks to understand is that there's this incredible disparity, as, mm -hmm. as we mentioned, right? Um, it's really an astounding disparity that exists, um, which a lot of people I think aren't aware of. Um, and then I think there's this really um, important need for us to pursue equity in our approaches, um, really pursuing equity within prevention and within treatment interventions and um, support and then high quality of care for, for all individuals. And um, realizing that oftentimes um, what we see is despite this disparity, um, there's inequity in um, the offering and, uh, and treatment um, of individuals um, with um, mental health and substance use disorders. And so for me, that's always like where I pause, which is we know the problem, we know the answer, um, and yet um, everything in between we have not prioritized. So what are some of those things that we could prioritize for the in-between? So I think um, 
you know what I what I often say is um, that, like I said, we have we have these solutions, we have these answers, right? And so I think what we tend to um, forget within these conversations is that the evidence-based interventions um, uh, that we are utilizing around smoking cessation in every other healthcare context work. Um, and um, and they work even with um, disparate populations, but it really has to do with us um, really prioritizing the application of those in equitable fashions in healthcare settings. So I think about um, tobacco-free facilities, right? And we have an expectation in the simplest sense that all hospitals are tobacco-free, right? Yep. Um, this has been an expectation for many years now, right? Um, the majority of um, of my life, certainly, I have not um, seen smoking in hospitals. Um, and, and yet within um, uh, behavioral health and substance use disorder uh, treatment facilities, um, you know, less than 50% of all campuses are tobacco free, um, despite us knowing um, that this environmental approach um, significantly um, uh, impacts um, cessation rates and then and access. Um, so even that first evidence-based environmental intervention. Um, and then um, certainly in terms of, um, you know, smoking cessation support. So everything from um, counseling to um, brief interventions to um, NRTs or nicotine, re nicotine replacement therapies and then pharmacological supports. Um, all of these are um, evidence-based and we know they work, um, but they are um, utilized and um, at significantly lower rates in behavioral health and substance use disorder settings. Um, so I think there's a there's a few reasons for that, but you know it's um, we have a disparity in in rates and then of of smoking, and then we have a real disparity in the application of evidence based interventions. That really probably compounds the problem mm -hmm. and makes it even you know the fatal the comorbidities and the fatalities due to some of these diseases even worse. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, a lot of this, as we know, has to do with prioritization. Um, when you're in front of a provider and um, you know, are you, is your primary presenting problem or symptomology a behavioral health issue? Is it a comorbid condition? And what is a, a physician or a provider gonna treat first? Um, and so part of our conversations really do have to be rooted in um, how we address uh, prevention and cessation um, kind of in tandem with, um, you know, with other um, treatment and, and really engage in what we would call integrated care and holistic integrated care. So what can healthcare providers do and health systems do to really help prioritize this and make smoking cessation a priority for all patients, including those with behavioral health, but specifically addressing this disparity? You know, I think um, so much of the solution is um, understanding the problem, right? Understanding yeah. this grave um, inequity that exists uh, and then realizing that um, part of our role, all of our roles, right, whether you're um, uh, a provider, whether you're um, a medical provider, a behavioral health provider, um, everyone from um, the front desk person and case manager when you walk in, um, to um, any sort of um, health, social service, or uh, behavioral health care organization, um, ideally one that's integrated with all, but um, if not any of those ones, um, is really being um, bought into the notion of um, 
the holistic um, health outcomes of that patient or client. Um, and knowing that all of the interventions um, that we have are critically important to saving their life, even if um, when when they first appear, it's for, like I said, different symptomology, but really realizing that um, smoking contributes to um, the number one causes of, of death and disability. So addressing that in every visit, um, at every opportunity, at every level, um, whether that's through these really evidence-based interventions we have. So the the asking the questions, the counseling, the provision of um, nicotine replacement therapies and pharmacological supports, um, and then significant psychosocial support throughout processes um, during cessation and then um, post-cessation for really maintenance and, um, and recovery. Uh, so I think there is... Um, so many things that every provider uh, can do, but it starts with awareness and then real prioritization um, around um, addressing uh, tobacco use within their uh, patients. Great. That's a great roadmap. Um, from a public health department state mm -hmm. perspective, what can state public health departments and people who work at that state level do to help influence and help encourage providers to do do these mm -hmm. interventions and do the right thing and really address um, the yeah. behavioral health population as a priority population. Yeah. So I think public health um, has uh, such a large role to play in this. And when I think of uh, you know public health, I'm, I'm thinking of that in a really expansive way. But certainly when it comes to tobacco control and cancer control, right, really um, being able to work both um, within public health agencies and, and um, their programs and their direct run um, uh, healthcare facilities in some cases or um, adjacent facilities in states. Um, and, and, um, and then really working to, um, you know, integrate and educate around the disparity in those settings. Um, we have seen incredible advancements in tobacco control in the last 30, 40 years, right? Um, I think we're all so aware of that, and yet we continue to see these this growing disparity. And so I think one of the roles that public health organizations, tobacco control and cancer control can play, and really, to be quite honest, need to play in the future, is how to start um, thoughtfully and intentionally integrating um, the need to address specific and tailored populations' needs within their programming, um, knowing that it's just of critical importance to really getting at um, who continues to smoke and who continues to smoke at such um, alarming and disparate rates, um, despite the rest of the population engaging um, or, or downtrending, I suppose, yeah. in smoking rates. No, it really does jump out as not following that trend line. Yeah. I mean, I think you and I know the environmental influence and approaches that states can have around, like we said, tobacco-free facilities, tobacco-free campuses, um, supporting different uh, organization types in those comprehensive and sweeping policies, um, we know has just significant, um, not holistic trickle-down effects, but significant effects for, for disparate populations as well. So, you know, the, the expectation um, that all healthcare facilities providing all physical health and behavioral health um, would go tobacco-free in a state, and that a state 
public health agency would really work with them to do that. That's a great piece of advice and a great way that state public health departments can really engage with Mm -hmm. communities and engage with health systems in their area to really help denormalize the use of tobacco and help all populations, including the behavioral health population, quit. Yeah. And and then I know that this is your favorite topic, right? Which is um, then what what's the role within health systems and within financing and Medicaid? As we've talked about before, both Medicaid and specifically Medicaid expansion have really increased the number of people who have access to health care in this country. And not only just access to health care, but specifically with that Medicaid expansion benefit, have access to behavioral health, have access to tobacco cessation coverage as part of their preventive services requirement. So it's really a robust benefit that people get, um, and people are using that benefit. There was a recent study in economic inquiry that showed that as a result of Medicaid expansion, there was a 24% increase in new tobacco cessation medication usage. And I think one of the things that this specific study that I'm referencing and will be in show notes um, shows is that having access to medication really help is one thing that helps people utilize medications. It's not the silver bullet, but it's definitely something that will increase uptick. And so that's one of the things that we're trying to do for all populations. And then again, specifically kind of reduce some of those disparities with the behavioral health population. So I think to follow up with what you said, particularly around Medicaid and and Medicaid expansion, um, just the the opportunities around um, Medicaid expansion just are so significant in addressing um, the disparities that we're talking about. Um, we know that expanding Medicaid um, expands coverage, period, right? Sweepingly, yes. <laughs> sweepingly so. Um, and then that includes individuals with um, behavioral health conditions. So we know there are certainly um, still gaps and there continue to be coverage shortages and um, challenges around um, the, the inequitable distribution of this. But, um, you know, it's been um, it's been so significant, as, as I know, um, you know and do an incredible amount of work in. Um, specific to, to smoking cessation, we know that um, Medicaid and, and is, is so critical to providing um, cessation supports and services, um, everything from counseling to nicotine replacement therapies to pharmacological supports. And I think as we've seen under expansion, um, the significant piece of that is that as we are advancing with um, strong pharmacological and technological supports to aid in cessation, um, we're also seeing an expansion in the coverage yeah. of those things. And that's the exciting piece is that um, not only do those things exist, but being able to actually cover them are, um, you know, so I think the actual growth and expansion of coverage of evidence-based interventions like just cannot be under-celebrated <laughs> Um, I, you know, I think we have huge work to be done in expanding Medicaid benefits, right? So we know certainly we continue to face challenges around um, eliminating barriers. So pre-authorization restrictions, uh, lifetime limits. Um, what we particularly see, um, I think, with folks with behavioral health issues um, is, um, and in many states, is this um, limited allowable medications in some states, Um and, you know, we have folks that um, continue to have s- such a high co-occurring yeah. 
Jasmine, do you mind yeah. if I just pause for a minute and yeah. allow to just so if you don't know, there's a number of states that have requirements on how many prescriptions an individual can have per month in Medicaid. Um, and that could be five or eight um, is usually around the number it is. It's not all states, but there are you know, a good handful um, or a couple handfuls of states that have these limits. And that's what Tesleem is referring to. So do you quit smoking this month or do you treat your behavioral health condition this month mm-hmm. um, or take your heart medication this month? And especially, as Tesleem was mentioning, those individuals with those comorbidities really have challenges getting all the medications they need. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's a great description of it, um, as because I think it's um, something that we continue to see as a as a limiting factor, um, particularly as folks' comorbid conditions, as we know, start to really um, add up and deeply impact each other. Um, and then, you know, I think the the other piece of this larger conversation around. Um, Medicaid and Medicaid expansion that is less on the Medicaid side is really working, like we said, with providers and patients on understanding what the benefit is, right? Like it's expanded or it hasn't, or here are the limitations, but really here's the opportunity. And so a lot of the time when we talk about what Medicaid covers, we also talk about how do we get the information out to providers and patients around um, what this benefit is. Um, yeah, that promotion piece, I think, is you know, lacking in a number of states. There's so much more that can be done to really try to reach all populations, but mm-hmm. making sure that people know that they have coverage for these treatments and they can get help. Yeah, absolutely. Tesleem, everything you've said today has really been fascinating, but how can we use this knowledge moving forward and the work that you and I do every day, and then everybody that's listening does every day to really reduce tobacco use. Yeah, so, well, thank you. Hopefully it's helpful for folks, um, you know, listening, whether they're a provider, public health organization or agency, um, national stakeholder, all right, um, to really understand um, what this disparity is. Um, but then also, yeah, what what do we do moving forward, as you said? Um, and I kind of, you know, we'll go back to the very beginning in my first statement, which is like, we know the problem, right? We know there's this significant disparity. Um, people with mental illness um, or a substance use disorder um, are make up for account or excuse me, account for 25% of the population, um, but consume 40% of all cigarettes sold in the United States. So, you know, the, the, the consumption um, is such a challenge. But then I really like to ground in the fact that we have the solution, right? We have these evidence-based interventions. And then we also have some really um, significant successes on expanding uh, payment and coverage. Um, So we've just seen significant significant progress. Um, So what I think the the singular thing moving forward, despite all the smaller pieces of you know, continuing to work on Medicaid, continuing to work on provider education is really us focusing on prioritization, right? Really um, uh, recommitting to addressing health disparities, um, uh, addressing um, and incorporating a health equity framework within um, our tobacco control work and um, and cancer control work, frankly, too, um, as our understanding of tobacco and cancer control has expanded to, to realize that while we've had such successes um, with uh, the overall general population, we're still seeing these huge disparities. Great. 
Um, what advice would you give somebody who's trying to approach tobacco cessation and behavioral health? You know, I think there's there's a couple areas of advice, but um, first and foremost, to just remember that we need to provide equitable access to high quality health uh, care, including behavioral health care to all individuals, um, regardless of the ability to pay or regardless of individuals having potentially a significant behavioral health um, issue or need. Um, and then I believe that we need to connect um, our conversations about tobacco to our larger conversations around addiction. Right. Um, we've really divorced conversations around um, tobacco and tobacco control from larger conversations we're having around addiction and um, drug use and misuse. So um, that conversation around addressing the physical, psychological and social aspects of this um, and then really asking the question about why this disparity exists. Right. Um, so our organizations and providers, clinicians um, and ourselves like what what is the role that we're playing in um, either addressing or perpetuating um, these disparities on the day to day, and um, and what is our role and commitment to addressing the you know single greatest cause of disease and disability in our country? That's very powerful. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add or share with everyone? Yeah, you know, I think. Um, Finally, and to close out, um, I think we need to support recovery, right? So we talk a lot about cessation and we really want to support cessation. Um, so supporting cessation and then um, remembering uh, that addiction is more than just one physical act. Um, so supporting maintenance um, and supporting recovery-oriented systems of care and programming that extends beyond a 48-hour quit attempt when nicotine leaves your system, um, particularly for those with behavioral health conditions, um, because you and I both know um, that uh, sometimes it takes an individual one, two, six, seven times. Yeah. Right. I think seven is the average. I think it's yeah. you know a lot of people take yeah. more than that. So um, so so knowing that it's not just um, you know here's here's um, one solution or one size fits all and um, one prescription, um, but it's really this combination of um, cessation support services and then really us um, orienting our systems towards recovery and long-term support of individuals who have had successful quit attempts. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, Tesleem, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. If somebody would want to get more involved in behavioral health, is there a way that they can connect with you guys or there, how can people access your resources? Um, just kind of what next steps for people that are listening on on their on their phone while they're coming to work. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Thanks for asking. Um, I think we're a two thousand, almost two thousand member strong uh, network and growing every day. So check us out um, online and really join the conversation and access additional resources and exclusive membership offerings um, at um, www.bhthechange.org. Um, and once you sign on and join as a member, you get, um, like I said, access to additional resources, our exclusive member listserv, where we're um, sending out opportunities for um, free practice change initiatives and ways to support you, your um, department, 
um, practice or providers in addressing um, tobacco and cancer disparities in behavioral health populations. Thank you, Tesleem, and thank you to all of you out there listening on today's episode of the Tobacco Cessation Podcast. We hope you enjoyed learning a little bit about tobacco cessation and behavioral health and ways to help address tobacco cessation and tobacco use in the behavioral health population. For more information, please visit us at www.lung.org slash cessation TA. And as always, we hope you have a great day and we will be back soon with another podcast. Thanks so much. Bye.